0: You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co host, Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader. Joining us in the studio today is one of Embark's resident lease accounting specialists, Mr. Ty Cotter. Ty brings his experience in implementing ASC 842 over the last couple of years including navigating through the guidance related to today's topic, embedded leases. With private companies required to adopt the new leasing guidance in 2022, we know that today's discussion will be meaningful as they begin to identify all their leases for those who may have already adopted the guidance. It'll be a good refresher of key considerations to keep in mind. And I have plenty of questions to go around for both Adam and Ty, so let's jump in. Adam, I think before we dive into embedded leases, it would be helpful for our listeners to get a definition of exactly what is a lease under US GAAP.
1: Sure. So I think maybe one way to look at it is to help set the stage of what you know the definition of a lease was or the, under the old standard to what it is under the new standard, ASC 842. Because they'll sound very similar, but there are some slight differences that we want to point out. So mm-hmm. under the old standard, um, a lease existed basically if there was use of any type of you know property, plant, or equipment, whether it was explicitly or implicitly identified, and the lessee had the right to use that specified PPE. Under the new standard, the you know the definition of a lease has shifted to more of like a control model, mm-hmm. very similar to what you saw with you know for people that transitioned to ASC six hundred six or under the consolidation standard, the concept of control is coming up more and more in the standards. And it's really where there's an arrangement that contains a lease if there's the right to control an identified asset. And the customer um, that has that right to control that asset also you know, obtains substantially all the benefits from using that asset.
0: All right, so we've got a lease defined. Now let's dive in today's topic, which is embedded leases. I feel like we hear more and more about this recently. So is this a new concept introduced by the new accounting standard?
1: no so there is this kind of colloquial term about embedded leases everyone's like you got to watch out for embedded (laughs) leases where are they hiding in your business things like that but (laughs) the concept of an embedded lease really isn't new it did exist under the old leasing standard as well um and we should clarify that like us GAAP actually doesn't define the term embedded lease anywhere in the standard right so it's just what is a lease is what the standard refers to Um, But when we hear the term embedded lease, we're basically talking about any contract, so any other type of contract that potentially could contain a lease component within that contract. So sometimes it's not always apparent whether or not a contract has a lease component, and that's where the challenges come um so companies are having to become more and more aware of what other types of contracts they may have that could potentially have leases within the terms of those contracts
0: okay so what are some practical examples or types of contracts you might see that have embedded leases
1: yeah i mean it'll obviously vary organization to organization i guess some of the more common ones are um, a lot of it arrangements so it data center arrangements you may be paying for some type of service, but, you know, involved with that, you may be given a server or something along those lines, um, logistics contracts, transportation type contracts, um, definitely in the healthcare industry. We see a lot of like free medical equipment be given with, you know, purchase type contracts for consumables that are used with the equipment and things like that. So. There's a bunch of different types of contracts out there that could have embedded leases um, which are why you know we're obviously talking about it today and you know public companies obviously went through the exercise but really just putting the the lens back on that you know companies need to spend the time to really take a hand on where where there could be leases within the organization.
0: So we kind of already touched on this that embedded leases it's not a new concept but is it fair to say that companies are paying more attention to the concept with the adoption of ASC 842?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the reason where there probably is so much more focus, you know, when people are really kind of honing in on it is because, you know, the one of the biggest chains, especially for lessees under the new standard is that all leases are going to go on the balance sheet or practically all leases, I should say, with, you know, limited exceptions. So, you know, missing leases under the old standard, you know, you may end up just not disclosing something within your lease commitments disclosure, but there was nothing really on the face of the financial statements for leases to, mm-hmm. to be recognized. Um, that obviously changes with ASC 842. So if a company fails to identify all their leases or leases that are hiding in other contracts, you know, the, the balance sheet is going to be understated in terms of the right of use asset and the related liability with that lease. So. So definitely more focus, It's more of a material matter, which is why it's important to get it to get it right really on day one and going forward.
0: Okay, so if that's. It sounds like having a complete listing of all of mm-hmm. our leases is really important to focus on. So, uh, Ty, what are some ways companies can help ensure they're capturing all of that?
2: Yeah, so there are a couple of things that we recommend for companies to ensure completeness of their lease portfolio. And frankly, a lot of audit most audit firms are requiring you to prove out your mm-hmm. completeness. So you're actually helping yourself now, but then also in the future mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to time for the audit, but just conducting surveys of company personnel about types of service contracts that they have just to understand, mm-hmm. hey, where do we have in IT, marketing, legal procurement, et cetera, and then developing a master lease schedule and reconciling that to the prior year 840, just schedule that you've got that goes into the financial disclosure. Mm-hmm. Reviewing recurring vendor payments from the cash disbursement listing just to determine what are our material like vendors that we're sending out a lot of cash towards, and then reviewing the underlines underlying contracts associated with that. But then also reviewing vendor listings, so you've mm-hmm. got the idea of a material amount. But what if you've got you know immaterial small leases? So looking at the vendors to see, hey, do these look like le- leasing companies or leasing activity? And then just practically speaking, um, a lot of companies embedded leases. Um, can be material or immaterial. And so you should always look to use your company's capitalization policy. So, for instance, if your capitalization policy is $5,000, anything less is just going to go straight to the PL as an expense. You would obviously want to exclude any contracts that are less than that just simply because they'd be expensed, anyways. So, definitely using that thought process when going through your
1: completeness yeah, search. Get out of the weeds for sure. Yeah. yeah
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and I'm sure auditors would really appreciate that good documentation and going through those procedures. So let's say a company goes through, they believe they've identified all potential embedded leases, what framework should they use to evaluate these leases?
2: Yeah, so the framework, because embedded leases are still leases, the framework doesn't change. So it still comes down to the main criteria the standard outlines is, is there an identified asset within the contract, and then does the customer have control of the asset throughout the period of use, which would include one, the right to substantially all economic benefit from the asset, and then two, the right to direct the use of the identified asset. So if both of these criteria exist, you've got a lease.
0: There's nothing else?
2: There's nothing else there, but when applying it, it becomes a little bit more tricky with embedded leases because sometimes it's not as clear cut.
0: That seems to be the case many times. There's always complexities out there. And you know I'm not gonna let you off the hook with just the definition. That's fine. We're gonna dive into each piece. So, first thing you mentioned was an identified asset. Can you tease that out just a little bit? What does a company need to assess?
2: Yeah, so there's a couple things that you'd want to assess when trying to determine whether or not there's an identified asset. First, whether there's an an asset specifically identified in the contract. Mm -hmm. So in most cases, the assets that are subject to leases are listed, you know, a vehicle, a parcel of land, a piece of equipment with a serial number. um, Very specific, very easy to identify. But then on the other hand, assets that are implicitly included in the contract contract just in order to fulfill the service agreement. Mm-hmm. So for instance, there could be a service agreement where there's only one, the, the, the provider only has one asset in order to provide that service, that would be an identified asset. Mm-hmm. However, um, it could be something where they have multiple assets that could be used to provide the service. And so it's determining whether or not um, it's economically beneficial for that provider to switch that asset in and out. And so if it's not economically feasible for them, then it would be an identified asset.
0: Okay, and what about if an asset is physically distinct?
2: Yeah, so in most cases, the asset will be a complete asset and therefore easy to identify. Mm -hmm. So again, back to a building or piece of equipment. However, a capacity portion of an asset can also be an identified asset. So in certain circumstances where the customer has the right to receive substantially all of the capacity of the asset, that would Mm -hmm. be identified. In these instances, arrangements would need to be carefully evaluated to determine if it's still distinct. For example, a contract providing the use of a portion that is less than substantially all the capacity in a pipeline. So think of an oil and gas pipeline. Mm-hmm. There's multiple pipes. How much of that pipe does the company actually control? Um, so a very niche example of this that we had a client that had they had satellite arrangements, mm. and so these satellite this contract specifically said, hey, this is the frequency that you will get to use. Mm-hmm. Um, this is you know the the piece of the satellite where your information will be pinging. So it was much easier to determine whether or not they had you know, an identified piece of that yeah. asset.
0: Wow. So Adam, I know in many lease agreements, the lesser may have the right or obligation to swap out a leased asset over the course of the lease. How does this impact the assessment?
1: Yeah, so it's important once you've gone through and you feel like you've got an identified asset to understand whether or not there's any like substitution rights that the supplier has. And so if there are no substitution rights, then you, you definitely have a, a lease here. Um, however, if there are substitution rights, which you know a lot of agreements do have some type of substitution language or, um, or clauses in the agreements, mm-hmm. you have to really evaluate whether that substitution right is substantive uh, because it could have implications on whether or not you actually have an identified asset.
0: Okay, so what makes substitution rights of the supplier substantive?
1: Yeah, so the the whole purpose of looking at whether it's substantive is really just to figure out, like, does the supplier actually really control the asset because they have a substantive substitution, right? So they, you know, a, a substantive substitution, right, would allow them to basically put something else in its place or redeploy an asset somewhere else kind of at their, you know, their whim. So they're really kind of directing how and for what purpose that asset is being used. And it's not really the customer that has the ability to do that because they, you know, the, the supplier can substitute and do it at their own at their own regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but the standard does list out a couple things that have to be met in order for a substitution right to be substantive. So one, they have to have the practical ability to actually exercise um, that substitution right. So there has to be an alternative asset that they could replace it with. Um, and then there really has to be like an economic benefit for, for exercising that right. So the supplier has really got to be economically inclined to do it because sometimes obviously substituting something could be cost ineffective and like they wouldn't do that. So. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so what if a supplier has a substitution right but it's not throughout the period of use instead it's for the right of only a portion of the lease term
1: right yeah so sometimes they may you'll see in a clause where like the lease term is 10 years and in years one through five the supplier could substitute the asset for you know another comparable asset or something like that there's often questions that you know sometimes companies will ask like well do we not have a lease for the first five years, but then the second half of the year, we do have a lease because there's no substitution right in that second half of the year? And you really don't like bifurcate like, the arrangement. Um, basically, what the standard tells you is that if, you, if, the, if the substitution right isn't substantive throughout the entire period of use, then it's not a substantive substitution right. So in this case, if they only had the ability to substitute for a discrete period of time and it wasn't the entire period of use, then it wouldn't be considered substantive. I will add that, like, you know, from a from a lessee or a customer perspective, sometimes trying to, like, figure out, like, does the lessor have all these things? Because you don't always have the information you're having to make some assumptions. And, you know, it can be sometimes challenging to come up with whether or not like they meet these criteria for that substitution. Right. And the standard is pretty explicit that if you can't come to the answer, or you don't have enough information, then you have to just presume that the substitution right is not substantive. So it kind of like, you know, errs towards the side that you're likely gonna have a lease versus not a lease. Yeah, I've seen a lot of clients try to go through the hoops to try and prove out that it's not a lease and it gets very squishy
2: and it's just (laughs) like, no, that's not gonna pass. Audit snuff and you're kind of wasting your time.
1: Yeah. And because you know less source from their end, like they, they also have to look at their arrangements and determine whether their arrangements are also leases. But obviously, doing these, making these assessments is a lot easier from the lessor side because they're just assessing their own kind of like abilities. And I would right. say, like the
2: only time it's that I you typically see those economic feasibilities is for equipment where they know, hey, we could yeah. go out and sell this vehicle for, you know, X. But then you're kind of looking already at. I mean, that's an
1: identified asset, anyways. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about if assets are replaced for wear and tear or for maintenance?
1: Yeah, so that's a very common clause that you see in a lot of lease agreements that the supplier will guarantee. Obviously, if something's not working, they're going to, you know, maybe they'll try to fix it. But if not, they'll, you know, replace it with something comparable. Um, And the standard is very clear that if you, you know, have to substitute an asset for defective, you know, assets or whatever, it's not considered a substantive substitution, right? So there's still going to be an identified asset. So it doesn't preclude the arrangement from being a lease. Um, Other times you may also see arrangements where there's um, kind of a scheduled asset replacement and it's agreed to prior to the lease inception. So... You know, at a certain date, they're going to swap out the asset for another asset or whatever. Mm-hmm. That arrangement also doesn't preclude, um, you know, the arrangement from being a lease because of a sub- of substantive substitution, right? Because it was something that was already in place prior to inception. And then I would also add that if there is a substitution right, but ultimately, like the customer has to approve what's coming or the new asset or the comparable asset, then that's also not considered substantive.
2: Yeah, it always
0: goes
1: back to the economic feasibility of it. It's not
2: in their best interest to have to fix right. wear and tear.
0: Which, Thank you. That's such a great segue oh, wow. to my next question. <laughs> 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 what factors does a company need to think about when they're evaluating whether those economic benefits to exercising the substitution right exist?
1: So like I said, I kind of touched on that from like the perspective of the customer and like they really have to focus on like the supplier's perspective, which again, can be a little challenging. Right. Um you know, but some things they might think about when they're trying to evaluate, okay, we know they've got alternative assets, but is it economically beneficial for them to still use that right? Is, you know, just the cost to relocate the assets. So if, you know, the assets overseas somewhere and like, you're going to, are they really going to ever go through the, you know, cost and expense and effort to replace an asset that's not nearby, or it's hard to, to locate or something like that, or it's, you know, it's obviously not near the supplier themselves. Um, They also need to think about kind of downtime. So like impacts to the customer's business and any like recourse the customer could have for a business interruption, Mm -hmm. as well as like any downtime to the supplier's business, just having to like, you're moving a couple assets, you're not able to like deploy those assets or probably even collect some, you know, lease payments related to the lease term if the assets can't be used. So just, you know, thinking about any foregone production costs, things of that nature. If there's a need to convert the asset, like, you know, if the asset was kind of customized and now you be bringing in a comparable asset but it requires maybe some modifications or something like that to be comparable, like are, you know, are they really gonna go to the expense of doing that to replace yeah. it? Probably not. So things like that are, you know, factors you could keep in mind, but I will say it, it it's a little challenging i think for a lot of customers um, to sometimes really kind of figure out is it economically beneficial
0: is there any threshold or measurement used to decide if it is is there like a a line there or no sadly not (laughs) Uh,
1: yeah it's really like it's a lot of judgment um again i think you kind of you come back to that statement where i said like if you can't if you don't have enough information to conclude or you don't feel like you can like (laughs) you know, clearly reasonably certain, like determine this, then the Mm -hmm. standard really says you really have to assume it's not a substantive substitution, right? You know, a a couple things to kind of keep in mind is that, you know, generally if the, if the asset is located on a customer's premise, like a lot of times people are going to argue that it's, it's not a substantive substitution, right? Because they're not going to go to the, you know, the, cost or time or effort to replace that asset versus if you're leasing an asset but it's on the suppliers premises like you know you're you're using one of their their data centers or something and so like they're providing you services but also you're using their servers but they maintain and run all that stuff in-house that could be different because um you know them to swap out or move things around is obviously a lot easier on their own premise than having to go to a customer site then you get into the whole issue of identified asset just simply because if they want to change the hardware out they can very easily right Um, and then i will add too is that um you know you really want to think about um any factors that really just existed at the inception of the lease so you know the ability down the road that an asset gets replaced because new technology or something comes out doesn't also um, necessarily preclude that the substitution right is substantive because Mm -hmm. At the inception of the lease, unless it was known that that technology already existed, and then you're getting a new asset or updated technology, it's something that you wouldn't have factored into that yeah. know, kind of assumption. So it wouldn't preclude you from saying that like this is not a substantive substitution, yeah. right?
2: Yeah. So, would you say, generally speaking, more often than not, substantive substitution rights don't exist for a lot of these contracts?
1: I think like certain types of contracts lend themselves to where you can make that conclusion a lot easier, especially where the assets are on premise. You know, there's multiple assets that are available on premise of the supplier, I should say, versus like if it's a very specific type of leased asset and, you know, the it's off on like the customer's location and i, I do think it's a harder hurdle to yeah. overcome um just because measuring the costs and stuff like that is is a matter of judgment yeah. and i think you know the company might lean to a conclusion but i would all, i would think their auditors in many cases wouldn't, wouldn't have out. enough yes. evidence yeah. to support that conclusion and so it'd be a harder you know a higher hurdle for sure to like overcome gotcha. and, and get to that answer yeah.
0: Well, believe it or not, that was just part one of the lease definition. So let's move into part two um, around the right to control the identified asset throughout the period of use. Ty, when does this occur?
2: Yeah, so the company has the right to control the identified asset throughout the period of use if two factors exist. So the customer has to have the right to substantially all the economic benefit Mm -hmm. from the use of the asset throughout the period of use and the ability to direct the use of the asset. Those both have to exist. If both criteria exist, then you've met the the definition of control. If not, um, then you have not.
0: All right, so as always, I'm gonna dive into each of those pieces. So substantially all of the economic benefit, is that straightforward? Is there some complexity?
2: There is some complexity, but it should be fairly straightforward. So generally because the customer you know, in a lease, frequently as exclusive use of the asset, mm-hmm. In those situations, they definitely have you know right. substantial economic benefit of it. Mm-hmm. However, in some contracts, uh, they may provide for a party other than the customer to have the right to use the the asset for minor amounts. Um, back to kind of what we were just talking about, like if that that's more common for leases that are not on the the customer or the lessee's property, mm-hmm. um, and so. A customer would not control an asset if another party has the right to more than an insignificant amount uh, of proportion of the p- potential economic benefit. The assessment should focus on the contractual rights of the respective parties, specifically the rights to the output and other economics derived from the use of the asset should be considered. Um, if a customer does have does not have contractual right to all the existing capacity of the asset, and the arrangement does not grant the customer an option to acquire any additional capacity, the arrangement is unlikely at least. However, if the customer has the option to increase the volume of output it consumes before it's given to additional customers, Mm -hmm. so typically a right of first refusal, the arrangement likely meets the criterion. Are we happy with that?
0: Yeah, I think that's super helpful. I think that provides some clarity, but could you elaborate more around what it means to direct the use of an asset.
2: Yeah, for sure. This uh, kind of makes me go back to, to elementary school and thinking of the who, <laughs> what, where, why, when, and yeah. how. Um, but Being the a example- school journalist. Yes, <laughs> yeah. 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 So changing the types of output that is produced by the asset, um, changing when the output is produced, right. changing where it's produced, and then changing whether the output is produced and the quantity of the output. Um, that would typically you know, show that you've got you can choose with what, what the asset throughout the period of use. Um, but the first step in performing this analysis is to identify the rights that are most relevant, uh, changing how and for what purpose the asset is used. In other words, those rights that impact the benefit to be derived from the asset.
1: Yeah, and you'll hear a lot of people refer to those as like the decision-making yeah. rights. So that's kind of the language that's thrown around.
0: Okay, so what if some of those decision-making rights are actually predetermined in the contract?
2: Yeah, so that's another, that's a great point because this, like, for instance, like a vehicle, right? Like you've mm-hmm. got a car and like the, the lender or the lessor to protect itself, there will be certain things you can and cannot do with the vehicle. Right. But because those exist within the contract, at least inception, um, that would, you know, still be within your directive powers. Like it's a dumb joke, but like you can't take a, a rental car to a demolition derby that's outside <laughs> the scope of use. Yeah. Um, so in other words, just you
1: can choose what it's used for, but within reason. Right. There's some reasonableness there for sure. Yeah, the predetermined like rights are really kind of setting the scope at inception for how that asset is going to be used. But then like you still have certain abilities to make yeah. decisions for that period of use within yeah. the scope of what they set, so the boundaries. So it's looking at then what are those rights that are most important within the scope of those predetermined yeah. rights. For sure.
0: That makes sense. So if we go through all of this and we figure out this is a potential lease component embedded in another service contract and we determine that it is a lease, what are the next steps?
2: Yeah. So this is where 842 and 606, the revenue standards, start to converge. Mm -hmm. So similar to the guidance in 606 requiring performance obligations to be allocated to the consideration. The lease guidance requires you to measure the lease total consideration and then allocate it to the lease components and or non-lease components. So Mm -hmm. you can typically, because they're embedded leases, that means it's a service agreement typically, right? And so you're gonna have multiple components, a service piece and then a a lease piece. So you would allocate the consideration among the different components based on the relative standalone prices, Uh um, which would be determined through observable inputs or through estimates made by management, which could be challenging in some cases. That's typically challenging just because a lot of service providers don't want to make it very obvious what each piece of the contract costs for them. Um, But an observable standalone price is the price charged by the lessor or similar suppliers for similar leases or non-lease components. Um, So thinking of leases of substantially similar assets or non-lease components under similar agreements. But, mm-hmm. So when estimating the standalone prices, lessees are required to maximize the use of observable imp- information. So in some circumstances, using a residual approach uh, for estimating the standalone price of a separate lease or non-lease component may be appropriate. For example, a residual estimated approach may be appropriate if the standalone price for a component is highly variable or uncertain. That's a lot of work and uh, <laughs> it's uh, not, not that easy.
0: Well yeah, that sounds like a ton of work, especially for a lessee who may not have as much information. So Is there any relief that's provided here?
2: Yeah, there actually is. So thankfully, the FASB came out with a practical expedient that allows you to not separate the lease and non-lease components and just to account for each service contract Mm -hmm. by the underlying asset and combining the lease and non-lease component. So you could potentially, for automobiles, determine that you're going to combine the lease and non-lease components. Mm -hmm. And for real estate, say, no, we're not going to do that. We'll break it out and present those separately. Um, So lessers actually have a similar expedient to combine lease and non-lease components and account for the combined component either under ASC 606 or ASC 842, depending on which is more predominant in certain, certain criteria are met. Um, th- those criteria are important, we're not gonna go into detail, but they do play a factor into it. Uh, the lessee expedient does not have additional criteria that must be met in order to elect the expedient. So you could you just have to apply it consistently across your asset groupings. Um, but when deciding whether or not to combine the lease and non-lease components, it's definitely easier to combine them, mm-hmm. but they do have some unforeseen outcomes. For instance, you could really be grossing up your balance sheet by a much larger number right. than if you were just to break out the lease and non-lease component. And so mm-hmm. depending on what internal metrics are important to you or to your bank or to your investors, it may be worth it to break it out just so you're not grossing up the balance sheet as, as much as possible. But And then the second expedient, which is part of the package of practical expedients, at transition, the lessee may elect not to reassess whether any expired or existing um, contracts contain a lease under the new definition of a lease. Thus, you would only be looking for future agreements um, in order to determine whether embedded leases exist. Um, but then lastly, it's worth it to mention that there is a short-term lease accounting policy election that can be made. So that would include not recognizing on the balance sheet leases that are 12 months or less in duration. Um, essentially, you know, if it's less than 12 months, you don't have to put it on the balance sheet, which is really, really nice. Um, the, only, the only concern there is that you would still need to consider renewal options in those short-term leases. Right. So if you've got leases that are month-to-month or year-to-year... Um, and it's reasonably certain, so FASB is not defined reasonably certain, but it's typically around 90%. So if you're reasonably certain to renew those leases, they immediately become long-term and cannot, you know, be ele- the short-term lease election can't be made.
0: Hey, we like expedience. That sounds like it's... A lot to digest, but a lot of really helpful stuff there. Just
1: real quickly, I would say too that from my experience, I do see most companies like on combining the lease and non-lease components, like especially from the lessee perspective, like since there's really, it's just an election, you don't have to like trip any bars to like get that, get that right to do that, taking Mm -hmm. that, you know, expedient because it does simplify the accounting, you know, there are you do need to kind of keep in mind any covenants that could be impacted by having these larger liabilities, for example, on your balance sheet, especially if you've got a service contract that just has a small lease element. If you elect yeah. that that expedient, you're basically saying everything is a lease in that contract, so all the consideration is gonna be considered part of yeah. the, the lease. And so you may not even really have that much of a lease activity in there, yeah. but you're gonna end up grossing up that that balance sure. sheet. So. Just something to keep in mind, but I do think most lenders are aware, obviously, of the impacts of 842, what it does to the balance sheet. So a lot of agreements, you know, may have been amended to exclude certain things from certain ratios or whatever needs to be done. And if not, it may be something just worth exploring just to make sure that, you know, the implementation adoption of ASC 842 and taking any of these expedients doesn't have any like consequences for that. For sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right, well, as we're landing the plane, anything else you wanna leave our listeners with for leases? Yeah, I definitely
2: wanna just remind listeners that 842 is much more tedious than 840. <laughs> it's not a set it and leave it model. So you yep. have to continually be reviewing your leases, schedules that you're you know, ultimately reconciling to include on your balance sheet, right. um, the gross up and what those effects may have. And then in some cases, changes to existing contracts that may result in different um, Different outcomes and not no longer qualifying um, as a lease or vice versa. Just being aware of that and making sure that you're staying up to speed. Um, typically, we recommend clients, you know, if you do adopt the package of Practical Experience, which I think 99% of clients do, mm-hmm. still doing a look back at your current service agreements mm-hmm. so that you're aware of ones that you're consistently renewing just to make sure that you are looking for when the new new agreements come out or if any
1: amendments are made so that they're included. Right. Yeah, And I would just add to that, you know, since the standard first came out in 2016, I mean, there's been several accounting standard updates subsequently (laughs) issued around leasing. So Mm -hmm. it is an area that the FASB is pretty active in. Um, And a lot of that's come from just, you know, users of the of the standard financial statement prepares their feedback their issues their concerns there have been you know post-implementation reviews being conducted um, that have garnered the need for some of these standard updates and there's likely more to come so you know if leasing is significant to your business which you know for a lot of people it is um you know whether you're a lessee or lessor it's just something to kind of keep a pulse on because Um, you know there are there are changes that have been done, and there could be more changes yeah. down the road. The hard part too is even if it's not a huge part of your business, you might think, well, we only have one or two
2: leases. But if one of your leases is your corporate headquarters, right. And you know monthly payments are quite high comparatively, the ROU asset lease liability may end up becoming the largest piece of your balance sheet. Um, so even if it's low volume, it could be high materiality, mm-hmm. and the FASB has not given any consideration on, you know. Can a different materiality threshold be used? The answer is no. So
0: right. that's
2: what makes it a bit tricky, too.
0: Awesome. Well, that's a great little snapshot into one little part of 842. As always, there's so much more to learn and so much more we could cover. Um, but we'd love if you found us on LinkedIn and connected. Um, we could answer more questions and any suggestions you have for future episodes. Um, I'd like to thank Ty for joining us today. Absolutely. And giving us a new lease on life.
2: <laughs> that was incredible.
0: Oh, yeah. It took me the whole episode to sneak in a <laughs> pun, but I did it. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.